Hello, and welcome to the AgTech So What podcast. Emerging technologies are rapidly changing the global agricultural industry, and we believe that this revolution is only getting started. But there's still too much hype out there and too big of a disconnect between ag and ag tech. So on this show, we try to bridge that gap. In each episode, we bring you the story of a different innovator in agriculture and try to find the place where ag and tech meet. I'm your host, Sarah Nolette. Today's episode is the fourth in the theme, Responding to Climate Risk, brought to you in partnership with the Australian Farm Institute. Check out episodes 42, 44, and 46 to hear more about responding to climate risk. Our guest today is Peter Thompson. Peter is a farmer based in southern central Queensland. He runs grass-fed beef cattle and crops about two and a half to three and a half thousand acres. The property is two adjoining blocks, one of which has been in Peter's family for 70 years as of this year. They also have another 6,000 acres of wilderness. I met Peter recently, and he's one of those guys that you just want to hear from. In just a quick chat over sandwiches at a conference, I could tell that Peter had a ton of stories to share and lots of hard-earned experience. In this episode, he shares a few. We talk about Echo Cattle, their operation, and the regenerative practices that he and his wife, Nikki, are using. We cover the impressive list of technologies they've adopted and Peter's outlook for Australia in a world with increasing climate variability. Given the theme around climate risk, I didn't expect us to start off talking about coal seam gas, but that is indeed where we'll start. It seems to be a love it or hate it relationship. We've got well number seven of the first 10 that were ever drilled in here in Australia in the coal seam gas industry. Nikki and I took the very conscious decision that we loved where we were, we wanted the land looked after, understood that the world needs energy, had still there in the background the biggest open cut coal mine in the southern hemisphere is still touted for about 20 kilometres east of us. We're hoping that will never go ahead. But with the coal seam gas, we've got these 40 wells across the two properties that we put a lot of work into ensuring that everything about the industry, the protection and of the land and water, were our number one priority. Number two was our livability. And number three was the agricultural production off there. So we said, righto, if we've got those principles in place, let's see how we can make it work. And we've been um, fortunate to be able to develop good working relationships with people outside of agriculture. Unlike in the U.S., in Australia with freehold land, farmers only own the first 12 inches. They don't have a say in what happens below that, because it's owned by the Crown. Peter took a very pragmatic approach that ultimately earned benefits back for Echo Cattle. We said, right, oh, well, we need the energy. Uh, I've given numerous talks around the country, and I say that that, uh, when the lights come on and those three holes in the wall, It's not magic that's happening behind there. It's actually something that's been produced somewhere else. And the initial approach was we'll give you a few cartons of beers and some tickets to the football and we might put a few gravel roads in. And our view was, well, hang on, you need to put your gravel roads and grids, etc., to get around your infrastructure and tickets to the football and whatever didn't really interest us. So we were also... um, instrumental in getting the system changed from a literally 
a pittance. It was only tens of thousands of dollars a year on the, so we've got 40 wells. That was only going to amount to you know, about $40,000 a year um, payment to us. And we've actually developed a compensation package where it amounts to hundreds of thousands of dollars a year and um, becomes a very uh, substantial support, obviously, through dry times. But it's, um, it, it's just been really valuable. There are a few takeaways from this experience for Peter around collaboration and how to compromise to achieve outcomes, but without compromising the well-being of the land and water. But despite Peter's focus on both financial and environmental outcomes, some are skeptical that Echo Cattle really is farming regeneratively. That's why Echo Cattle has an open door policy. Peter and Nikki invite people to come along and take a look for themselves. Yeah, we've always had an open door policy and we've had the most ardent opposition to tree clearing, to gas, to beef cattle, you name it. People will come and stay with us, visit a few days or whatever. And the comment is, we didn't know, we didn't understand, we didn't realise this visit has totally changed my worldview. Do you have any examples of someone who came in with one view and ended up saying that? There's literally been numerous and, and it still happens to this day. We've got friends who are very actively involved in the likes of World Wildlife Fund, Australian Conservation Foundation, all those sort of groups. It's that lack of context and the removal from reality that so many people, unfortunately, worldwide, the urban areas have become so far removed from where their food is produced and how and why things have to be done and the fact that you're dealing with nature. Peter is passionate about educating others about agriculture. His own journey has been one of challenging the status quo, thinking for himself, and working hard to figure out the practices, technologies, and mindsets that will work for their operation. As a young bloke, along with my father, I was practicing regenerative agriculture before the word was even known, and then sort of got caught up in the, the whiz-bangery of new machinery, new techniques, herbicides, ultra-clean paddocks, going for yield, productivity, all the things that are still happening. My view is that's sort of the high production, low human input thing. We'll probably go on for a while yet, unfortunately, but I think we're waking up to the fact that it isn't long-term sustainable. So we didn't ever get fully on the bandwagon of, uh, in fact, of one national wheat growing competition back in 1999, and we, we, we've used zero-till techniques. And But one of the questions asked of me, uh, was you know, what did I think of zero till? And uh, I said, oh, there's a place for it and it's not here. And one of the major sponsors was Monsanto and Agrivo and Australian Wheat Board were all involved. And I don't think that was the answer they necessarily wanted, but um, anyway, that's the answer they were given. And I've, I've been very wary of silver bullet solutions to anything in agriculture and for that matter, anything in nature, because Nature is just the most amazing thing for how it adapts. And, you know, as we humans think we've started to master it. And I know when I was younger, I used to even use the terminology, are we going to beat this or master that or whatever, take control. And the older I've become, I've realised that 
you know, that's an incredibly foolish way to operate and it's about listening to nature, listening to land and then working with what it's doing. Peter has adopted a few practices that, at the time, seemed crazy to many. But despite the controversy, some of them are really paying off, both financially and environmentally. We've been grass-fed beef producers and even beef production. You know, at the moment, there's all sorts of noises made about how beef cattle are killing the world. And there's another whole view that particularly grass-fed beef production can be one of the greatest carbon sequesters out there and provide food at the same time. And uh, I don't believe I'm biased. I think I'm actually realistic in saying that it's a very natural process and we've got data to back up a couple of things one around clearing timber so where we are we're in Briglow Balar country very fertile Briglow trees when you clear them come back because hairs on the dog's back so we manage them in a manner that allow the grass to grow and in our case we don't try to kill it we just want to keep it at a managed balanced level and we're seeing doublings of soil carbon levels and producing food at the same time rather than a lot of the carbon offsets that are happening at the moment. Countries being locked up and literally the people are leaving and communities are dying that because people are taking the cash running away and we've, we've got all this country that's literally being locked up and growing trees that without management have got wildlife going berserk under it and uh, once again it's this stuff that's being pushed from an outside group of people that don't actually understand the reality of what I can do here in southern central Queensland will be different to what we need to do in the Gulf country compared to wheat fields of Western Australia. Peter believes that there's no silver bullet, no single approach that is the answer when it comes to best practices. But things like willingness to ask questions and try new things are critical in helping Peter to respond to climate risk. I've always been keen on change. And to me, if you can be part of change rather than change swamping you or catching up on you, it can be just the most exhilarating ride because you can be in there trying new things. Peter shared one example of this kind of thinking in his cattle operation around HGPs, or hormone growth promotants. Again, Peter and his wife Nikki were really ahead of the curve with respect to consumer preferences. We took a decision to not use the bean HGPs, hormone growth promotants being used, and everyone was getting all these amazing results out of it. It just didn't feel right to Nikki and I and anyway we took the decision that we were going to be grass-fed not using HGP and you certainly cop a lot of you know you stupid bloody idiot can't you see there's a lot more dollars using HGPs so you you cop a fair bit of negative commentary from people but it was about two years after we made the decision not to use HGPs that all of a sudden the world woke up and you know there's a the like Coles, for instance, you won't buy HGP-treated cattle. So it sounds like you did that before you knew if there was any kind of premium or any kind of um, yeah. even real market for it, but that it paid off. And is it true that you guys do now get a premium for it? Yeah, we got a premium. And then as everyone caught up with it, like so often happens in agricultural products that 
it then becomes commoditized because everyone's doing the same thing. And we're literally, as we speak, we're in the stage of looking at the next, you could possibly describe it as niche market. There are people out there who are prepared to pay a premium and actually, I think that more is prepared to pay the correct price for well-cared-for livestock and crop production that has come up from land that has been cared for with concern for the land being sort of first and foremost. Beyond innovative practices, Peter is also working with technologies. For example, he has experimented with walkover weighing. This was part of a project with Future Beef, Queensland Department of Agriculture, and TrueTest. At the conference where I met Peter, the topic of technology on farm came up. Peter wrote out a list of all the tech at Echo Cattle, and it was so long that he even surprised himself. So I had to ask Peter to repeat the list here on the podcast, which was top of mind as they had just hosted a field day on their farm. We've had GPS steering for many years. Yeah, we've got a satellite base station, uh, you know, RTK, sorry, base station, which gives us our 25 millimeter accuracy on the tractors we've also got a thing through case new holland where i can literally call up the dashboard of the tractor you know there's times when i've been away and on my iphone i can just log in and i can see exactly where the tractor is what it's doing just as i was sitting in the tractor so that's a remote monitoring of it it also has enough various alerts there so that's one part Another is we've got 12 remote sensors on water bores and water tanks. And we had a good example this morning. In fact, we had a pipe burst and we didn't know what had happened. We noticed that a water tank got an alert that it was dropping um, quicker than it should for the number of cattle that were watering off it. We were about to go and check what was what. And some people working with us rang to say that they'd found a, a busted polypot. So we've got those monitors that are monitoring all, all our watering points. And out of that, we've got data that then tells us what time of day cattle are watering, how much they're actually using. And then with the walkover weighing system, because that's on a um, water point, we're getting weight gains of cattle, but we're also getting some interesting stuff about the fact that some cattle actually only water every second and some every third day. And it's a whole new field to look into. We're fortunate that we have 4GX mobile phone coverage over a lot of the place. The part of the place where we had the 100 people in the field day tent near our main house, um, we used self-I-go repeaters in the houses to get a good signal because we're behind down in a hollow behind a lot of trees and uh, local company advanced communications came out bought a um, a mobile satellite dish and created a wi-fi hotspot and a couple more cell fi goes so that we had the capability to to handle a um, hundred people all at this field day asking questions and the, the stuff that you would be used to in the city you know, off their phones. You know, we were doing that 80Ks from anywhere. Recently bought a drone. I mean, I've been keen on drones for ages, but I think they're more a backup to monitoring. They're certainly not the be-all and end-all that drone sellers will tell you, but they've certainly got a place in the tech side of it. And big one we're using is every five days, satellite imagery, 10-metre uh, pixels, measuring our pasture growth or, or not, which we're using for working out uh, feed budgeting. So we know how many days feed we've got ahead of us in a particular paddock with certain cattle in there. Yeah, looking at all the different tech we've got, there's a whole lot of things that are, are really good, but 
uh, that water monitoring, which is so critical with livestock and particularly in dry or summertime, uh, they will pay for themselves in no time in peace of mind and in value and is a really good starting point for people. And it doesn't cost the earth. Tell me about the, um, the pasture growth modeling. Like that's something that feels like the holy grail. Tell me a little bit more about that. It's bloody wonderful stuff. <laughs> We've only been using the imagery for about four months now, so it'll take a couple of seasons. But um, I can see where we'll get to the point where you know, we can very reliably say, yep, we've got 7,000 kilos of dry matter per hectare in that paddock. We've got 2,000 in another. Uh, yeah, there's a whole lot of stuff that we're, we're already getting beneficial use out of it and also picking up i call them hot spots and green spots so that you can physically drive ride or whatever out to the point and see what's happening on the ground or this is where i have found the drone comes in handy that you can fly the drone out have a look it might show up simply having a look through the imagery on the drone or you say no i've actually physically got to go and have a look we've either got a weed problem or a, you know, whatever it might be so we're 18,000 acres and from memory it's only a couple of thousand dollars a year for this every five days, you know, all this detailed stuff. I've been following this for years and it's about five years ago I priced our original home block. 10,000 acres was going to cost me $12,000 a year for three images a year. The cost of that side of tech has come like so much tech stuff has come way, way down, but it's also getting you know, way, way better. One benefit of the fact that technology is decreasing in price and increasing in performance is that more services are available, especially in regional areas. We often talk about the ag tech that enables productivity, but I wanted to talk to Peter about another tech, technology that enables quality of life. Because having happy people on your team is key to taking on the challenges that are involved in responding to climate risk. It's only a couple of years ago that Netflix was seen as, you know, in a meeting you'd be scoffed at and waste of time, whatever, whatever. But in this day and age, if we want people to live and work in regional areas, you know, it's, we don't work 24 hours a day in agriculture as much as some diehards of agriculture like the rest of the world to think you know we do take time off we do need to relax it's all part of mental and physical well-being and we don't have the opportunity to go down the road to a movie theater or a live theater or whatever so netflix and the likes plays a really crucial role and it's to the extent that um you know i know of different people where that if they haven't had the ability to provide free Wi-Fi and the likes of Netflix, that staff simply will not stay. It's, it's just become an expectation. And that used to be scoffed at, whereas, yeah, I, 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 and, and I'm pleased to see that people are starting to realise that it, it shouldn't be scoffed at. It is something that, you know, it, there is a real need for it. One thing that I learned from Peter, and that he has learned on his journey, is the importance of the bigger picture. We can talk about climate change and ag tech all we want, but at the end of the day, whether producer or consumer, we have some tough decisions to make about how we spend our money and our time and how we run our businesses. As a world, we can't keep consuming at the rate we're consuming. Um, that the production methods that we're using, we can't keep that going. 
look, we could be running our operation very differently and I'd say making a bloody fortune, but I like to be able to lie straight in bed at night and think there's a future for the kids. And uh, so it's it's about people just stopping and really thinking about the impact of are they living for today or are they living on tomorrow, yesterday. What do you see in terms of kind of climate risk and that you guys are facing and the role of technology in kind of helping respond to, to that climate risk that you guys would be experiencing, whether that's kind of things you've seen in the past couple of years or, or when you think about the future? So climate risk, it's real. And the thing that I believe we've got here in Australia that we can share with the rest of the world is the ability to deal with variable climate because that's something certainly Northern Australia has always been and there's, there's plenty of data around the fact that we are the most variable climate in the you know in the world so if we can monitor and measure the things that we've been doing to deal with that and then can share that with the rest of the world well that that has to help dealing with the here and now of the volatility but i see that technology being able to give us the ability to help people understand and connect people so that they realize that it's not me as the farmer doing whatever might be perceived as bad for the environment. It's you and me and everyone else that eats and drinks and lives. We're all complicit in it. So if we can virtually connect everyone and connect people back and might be as simple as uh, me flying the drone out and showing people what we're doing and doing that as a live feed, just those sort of things, I believe, give us a chance to turn around. You know, I, I still believe we've got time significant time to turn things around if we start now. Peter, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you very much for um, asking me to be involved. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Ag Tech So What? You can stay up to date with the latest episodes and news at agtechsowhat.com. And as always, if you have any feedback or other guests to recommend, we'd love to hear from you just hop on the website and leave us a comment or send us a message. Finally, if you like what you're hearing, and we hope you do, please share the podcast with a friend or leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening. Catch you next time.